All right, notes are in the back, some up here at the front. Grab a Bible, we're going to be reading some scripture tonight. This is week five of five, and it's just postponed a few weeks from when we originally thought we would talk about this. Uh, The series we've been working on is the five solas. We've talked about the first four. Uh, We've talked about sola scriptura, which is the idea that scripture is our final authority. We don't look to popes or councils or tradition uh, or our own wisdom, but we look to scripture as, as the authority for truth. We've talked about sola gratia, which is grace alone, and we contrasted God's grace and our sin when we talked about that, our inability to move towards God, to embrace God, that we're completely dependent on His grace to give us life. We talked about sola fide, that's faith alone. It is not according to our good works or things that we can do or penance or prayers or candles or tithing or anything that we can do to earn righteousness with God, but it's through faith. And then those three in the middle really hang together tightly. Solus Christus is Christ alone. Our faith is in Christ in who he is as the God-man, as the Savior, as the Lamb of God who died for us and who rose from the dead and gives us life. Our faith is in him. And then the last of the solas is soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. And so we're going to try to make sense of that tonight. And really it's just kind of a a summary and an encapsulation of everything else that we've already talked about. So let's start in 1854. There was a new preacher in London. His name was Charles Spurgeon. And uh, usually you see pictures of Spurgeon and he's kind of a rotund guy with a a nice big beard, and uh, he wasn't always that way. He was a young preacher once. He was about 20 years old. He assumed the pulpit at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, and he would eventually preach there for about half a decade. Uh, But his first sermon, it's kind of neat, his first sermon is recorded, not audibly, but on paper, and so you can read what did he preach in his very first sermon And his argument in that sermon was that the proper study for God's people is God. If we're the people of God, we ought to study God and we ought to know God. And so here's a quote that comes right out of his first sermon. He says, The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. That ought to be our focus. That ought to be the focus of our preaching and our teaching and our worship and our lives is who God is and all of his glory and his goodness and his grace and his justice and all of it. That ought to be what drives us. What's interesting today, and uh, Spurgeon saw this way back in in the 1850s and uh, we see it today on an even greater scale, is that most Christian preaching is not about God. It does not take its starting point with God. It takes its starting point with man. And the dominant philosophy among most who preach is, what do the people want to hear, need to hear? What are the felt needs that I can address What are the things in their life that I can say something about? And I guess you could say it's noble that they want to then go back to Scripture and find something to say. But the problem is the starting point. 
The starting point isn't with God, and it's not the perspective of, of Spurgeon saying the highest thought that we can think, the loftiest philosophy we can embrace has to center on God and who he is. The dominant approach today, the predominant approach says we start with us, and you make sure that it's relevant, and you got to make sure that it connects with people where they're at, and you got to make sure that it addresses some issue in their life that they feel is a problem. And Spurgeon would say, well, talking about God does all of those things. And the problem is not too many people today agree with him. Another man, I'll just share a few uh, quotes with you here out of the gate. A.W. Tozer is a guy who lived uh, about 100 years after Spurgeon. Um, it's long after the Protestant Reformation. But he agreed with Spurgeon's emphasis on God and knowing God and studying God and that being the center of what drives us. And this is what he said in one of his books. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When I say God, whatever it is that fills your mind, Tozer says that's the most important thing about you. It's not, you know, do you manage money well? It's not, uh, is your marriage everything it could be? It's not, you know, uh, all these other peripheral things that we get obsessed with sometimes. It's what is your conception of God? Who is he in your mind and in your heart? That's the most important thing about you. Um, dial it back to the Reformation for a minute. Lots of guys we could rightly call reformers, but two of the principal reformers would obviously be one, Martin Luther, and then two, John Calvin. Uh, they stand out in history as just the two giants that led the Protestant Reformation. And Luther was the guy that kind of got the ball rolling and he was kind of the spark that got the fire going. And Calvin came along in a different country, in a different place, in a different context as just a perfect one-two punch to what Luther was doing. Um, Calvin preached, and he sent missionaries, and he planted churches, and he wrote books. And he died young. He accomplished an incredible amount in his life. He died when he was 54 years old, and the year was 1564. And I just want to read to you his last words, okay? Calvin's last words. Concerning my doctrine, I have taught faithfully, and God has given me the grace to write. I have done this as faithfully as possible, and have not corrupted a single passage of Scripture, nor knowingly twisted it. I have never written anything from hatred of anyone, but have always faithfully set before me what I deemed to be the glory of God. He's just he's looking back on his life. And all the things that changed in his lifetime through his ministry and through Luther and through Zwingli and all these guys, he's looking back on his ministry and he's saying, I feel like I can look back with integrity and say my goal in all of it was God's glory. That was the center. That was the one thing that I wanted to drive at and drive home into people's lives. Forget the traditions, forget the councils, forget the popes. To God alone be the glory. That was what drove these guys. And so uh, James Montgomery Boyce, I put this quote on your outline. He's written a, a book about the five solas. It's a great book if you like to read. And he says this, no people ever rise higher than their idea of God. You never rise higher than who you think God is. If you have a big view of God, you're going to have big worship, you're going to have big missions, you're going to have big evangelism, you're going to have big discipleship. All those things, it's going to be on a big view of who God is. That's the foundation of it. If you have a small view of who God is, 
You try to cut him down to size. You try to limit him. You try to make him like us. You try to allow our wills and our abilities and our preferences and our thoughts about what God ought to be like to trump. Everything just gets diminished. Everything goes down from there. So let's just talk a little bit about the Reformation teaching. How would we summarize this last sola? The Reformers were concerned that God was not receiving all the glory in the Catholic scheme of salvation. It was a matter of the doctrine of salvation at heart. And the Reformers looked at it and they said, God's not getting all the glory for salvation here. Instead of God getting the glory, people were urged to trust in their own penance. They're urged to trust in the merit of the saints. They're urged to trust in the authority of the, of the church. And the Reformers said, Every one of these things takes away from God's glory. When you trust in what you can do, that diminishes the credit that God ought to get. When you trust in what the saints have done, that just cuts a little bit off of what belongs to God. When you trust in the church as the final authority, that just whittles away at the glory that God deserves. And they understood, they knew that the fight for God's glory would have to be fought in every generation. So they used this phrase, it's a Latin phrase, semper reformanda always reforming and what they meant is not we're going to keep changing doctrine changing truth and it's always going to be evolving that's not what they meant what they meant is the reformation is never going to end like we're always going to have to fight this fight because we are sinful in our hearts and we're going to be prone to go back to our old ways whether that's inside of a catholic church or outside of it Calvin would say, our hearts are idle factories. We're just prone to always go back to the filth that we've left. And we as a church always have to be reforming. We always have to be going back to Scripture. We always have to be going back to grace. We always have to be going back to faith, justification by faith. We always have to be going back to Christ alone. Nothing else, no one else. We always have to go back to, are we focused on the glory of God alone, always going back to these things? And really, at the heart of what these guys are talking about, they're setting forth two types of, of, uh, you could call it, soteriologies. On the one hand, you have a man-centered doctrine of salvation, soteriology. What do we do to work our way back into a relationship with God, and what can the church do to help us? That's all man-centered. It's on us. And the reformers are trying to break away from that and say, it it can't be man-centered. It has to be God-centered. It can't be about what we do. It has to be about what God has done. And those two things lead in completely different directions. And it doesn't matter what the name on the church is, Catholic, Baptist, Pentecostal, non-denominational. You can go in either direction with any sign on the front of your church. You can approach a man-centered view of salvation and worship, or you can approach a God-centered view of salvation and worship, but you've got to pick a road. You cannot be neutral on that, and you're going to end up going one way or the other. So let me give you a few quotes uh, from uh, the Reformation or from the heritage of the Reformation, and then we're going to jump into the Bible. First quote I'm going to give you is from the Puritans. The Puritans uh, you think of maybe as pilgrims. They lived about 100 years after the Reformation. Um, They wrote something called the Westminster Confession of Faith. 
And they got together in about 1640, and they, they met for a long time, and they just wrote sort of a, a summary of what they believed and what they thought the Scripture taught. And this is just sort of piece of history for you, okay? These Puritans, we would look back and think of them as kind of Presbyterian guys. When they wrote this confession of faith, the very first Baptists at the time in London said, hey, that's pretty good. We're going to take that. We're going to cut out the part about infant baptism. We're going to fix it, and we're going to use the exact same document. That's going to be our confession of faith, and they called it the Second London Confession. It was the Westminster Confession, scratch out the baptism stuff, make it baptistic, and, and they rolled with it. But they took the confession, and they boiled it down to a catechism. A catechism is designed to teach people, and it's a question and an answer, a question and an answer to help you learn truth. This is the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. This is where they wanted to start. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And they would say, and I would agree, and the Reformers would agree, this is like the continental divide in theology right here. Okay, This is what separates this man-centered approach from a God-centered approach. What is our chief end? Is it to find fulfillment in our life? Is it to pursue happiness and prosperity? Is it to chase down all of our wildest dreams? Is it to define who we are or who we want to be? These guys would say all of those answers lead toward this man-centered approach. The only answer that is safe is to say our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that's the division that these guys are talking about when they talk about to God alone be the glory. Spurgeon echoes this. I've already mentioned Spurgeon. Uh, I'll give you one more quote from him here. He says, man's chief end is to glorify and enjoy God. You know where he got that from. And he said, God's greatest and highest object. Listen to this. God's greatest and highest object is to make himself a glorious and an everlasting name. That's God's chief end is to make himself look good. Look, this is kind of a spoiler alert for the sermon on Sunday, but that's kind of the whole point of Exodus. God's saying, I'm going to make myself look good in the end here. I'm going to get the glory. I'm going to get the credit. Everyone's going to know who I am. Egyptians, Hebrews, everybody. You're going to know who I am. That's the whole point of what God is doing in the Exodus. It's the whole point of what he did in the cross through Jesus. He's making a name for himself. And Spurgeon would say, our chief end ought to be to glorify God because God's chief end is to glorify God. And if that's the most important thing to God, his own glory, it certainly ought to be the most important thing to us. So does all this jive with the Bible? I think it does, and let's walk, walk through a few ideas here. The Bible teaches us, number one, that above all, God is holy. He's holy. We talk about that a lot. God is holy. When God's holiness goes on display, the result is God's glory. Those two things kind of need to be connected in your mind. The holiness of God and the glory of God. Those two things dovetail. And you see it really clearly in Isaiah 6. So if you have a Bible, find Isaiah 6. A passage you're familiar with. Isaiah is having this vision, this experience of seeing God. In Isaiah 6.3, it 
the cherubim, or excuse me, the seraphim are calling back and forth, and what they're calling is holy, holy, holy. Used as repetition here uh, for effect, for emphasis, to say he's not just holy, and he's not just holy, holy, he's holy, holy, holy. He's the highest degree of holiness you can conceive. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full. You know it because you've read it and you see it in front of you. But if I just was asking you to fill in the blank of the last word there of what the angels were saying, you would kind of expect it to say the whole earth is full of his holiness. After all, he's holy, holy, holy. But what it says is he's holy, 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 and the earth is filled with his glory. When his holiness goes on display for the earth to see, that's called God's glory. And I just want you to pause right here. You see the same thing in Revelation. I want you you to get something in your brain that's really, really important. Um, Holiness is the key chief attribute when you think about God. He is holy, holy, holy. You find it repeated three times in Isaiah. You find it repeated three times in Revelation. No other attribute of God is repeated like that. He's holy. And that's intrinsic to who he is. No one can change that. Sometimes when we think about God's glory, we think of something that we might say on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, and we'll see in a minute. This is a good thing to say. God, we want to give you glory. We want to give glory to God. That's a good thing to say. We'll see it in a minute. But before you get to that, you just need to understand, God doesn't need you to give him glory. He doesn't need it. He's not sitting up in heaven saying, man, I hope the Wednesday night Emmanuel crowd does not cancel church for that windstorm because I really need them to sing the songs to God be the glory because my meter's getting low and I need a little boost. He is holy, holy, holy. Regardless of anyone worshiping him, not worshiping him, acknowledging him, not acknowledging him. That's intrinsic to who he is as God. And when that goes on display, as you see in the book of Exodus, it might be for salvation or it might be for judgment. Either way, God receives glory from that. His glory is on display in that. It's not just that glory is something we give to him, although that's true, but it's just part of who he is as God. It's intrinsic to who he is. So above all, he's holy. When that goes on display, the Bible calls that his glory. Number two, the Bible teaches us that God created all things for his glory. He created all things for his glory. And we're going to read both of these verses. Psalm 19, verse 1. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Just the fact that creation exists points to God's glory, gives God's glory, reminds us of God's glory. He created it for his glory. You see the same idea in Romans 11, verse 36. It 
from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All things are from God. All things have come through God. All things are designed for God, to God. And all of that means God gets the glory forever and ever. Amen. Period. God created all things for his glory. Number three, the Bible teaches us that salvation, now we're moving out of creation, we're moving into salvation. Salvation from beginning to end is intended to bring glory to God. And I'm going to let you read Ephesians 1. And as you read Ephesians 1, you just pay attention to the, the phrase, it's in there three times, to the praise of his glory. It's in there three times. And Paul in that paragraph, it's really one long sentence, he's describing this is what God the Father does in salvation. Why? To the praise of his glory. This is what God the Son does in salvation. Why does he do it? To the praise of his glory. This is what God the Holy Spirit does in salvation. Why does he do that? To the praise of his glory. Very systematic, very intentional. This is what God, the triune God, has done to save us. And the purpose, repeated three times, you can't miss it if you're paying attention, is it's all for the praise of his glory. So salvation is designed for God's glory. Next, the Bible clearly calls us to give glory to God. We're commanded to do this. Psalm 29, verse 1. says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. It doesn't mean that by you saying something or singing something that God gets more glory or more strength or more power. But it means you need to acknowledge that by saying something or by singing something. Ascribe to him these things. New Testament, look at 1 Corinthians 6. It says, you were bought with a price, verse 20, so glorify God in your body. God bought you, so when you live your life, you live it to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31 Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Your entire life ought to be lived to the aim of bringing glory to God. You can read the other verses uh, in Revelation. Next idea. This is a big one. The Bible says that an experience of God's glory will forever change you. It changes you. And I would like to read the Let's read the Exodus verse and the second Peter verse. So we'll start with Exodus 34. Exodus 34, verse 30. We'll just read 29 and 30. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nearing. This doesn't mean that once you get God's glory, you start glowing like a light bulb. 
But that's what it was for Moses as he stood in God's presence and he got these second copy of the Ten Commandments and he says to God, show me your glory. And he comes down and he's different and everyone sees it. Look at 2 Peter, way in the back. 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter 1 Peter 1.16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. There's the idea of holiness and glory. Just circle them both and draw a line. Peter's saying, look, we were on the Mount of Transfiguration, and we saw it, and we heard it. And the glory cloud, the Shekinah cloud, came down and covered this mountain, and we heard the voice booming out. It was a holy place because God's glory was on display in an amazing way. And that changed him. It changed him. And you say, man, I need one of those. Like one of those, what Moses had. I need one of those things that Peter had on the mountain where you see it and you can smell it and you can feel it. Just read the very next verse, verse 19. We have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And this is what Peter's saying. Some of us don't like this. We just want the mountain experience and the show me your glory and the face glowing and hear the voice and all the stuff. Peter says, that's great, and it was an experience of God's glory, and it changed us. But there is something even better than that, and you're holding it in your hand. The Scripture. If you want to experience God's glory, you don't need to go home and sit in your room and close your eyes and pray really, really hard that God would like show up in your room. You just need to go home and open your Bible and read it. Read it. And God's glory will be revealed to you, and it will change you. An experience of God's glory will forever change you. Now, let's talk about challenges. <clears throat> My guess is that in most churches in the United States, if you started to talk about, you know, we really feel like we should be giving glory to God alone. I don't think many people are going to object to that, do you? Church-going people. I think most people are going to say, well, absolutely. Of course you give glory to God alone. Who else would you give it to? So I don't think the challenge for you and I is going to come in the form of some angry you know, brother or sister in Christ saying, how dare you give God all the glory? We deserve some of that. That's not the challenge. I think the challenge is going to come in a smiling Focus on self. 
Not in somebody saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, I want some of the glory. It's going to be somebody smiling in a church, holding a Bible, talking about some Bible things, but ultimately the focus of all of it is self, and it's not God. And you can say the right thing, yeah, God, to God be the glory, praise God for that. But if the focus of your heart or the focus of your teaching or the focus of your worship or the focus of your life is you, then you really have missed soli deo gloria. You don't get it. So <clears throat> I was thinking uh, when, I, when I worked this lesson up, I was thinking about Bruce Springsteen. Any of you guys like Bruce Springsteen? Any of you guys don't like Bruce Springsteen? He's got a song called Glory Days. And it's kind of a catchy tune. I like the song. Easy to listen to and... Uh, the, the melody of it is uplifting. Like when you listen to it, you feel happy just listening to it. It's just kind of upbeat and you think, oh, yeah, the good old days. Uh, it just kind of makes you feel sentimental and, you know, you just look back and say, ah, that was, those were the glory days. But I don't know if you've ever listened to the lyrics of that song. It may be the saddest song ever written. It's really sad. It kind of revolves through three characters, all looking back on the glory days. Character one is a guy who was a great high school baseball player, but now he's nothing but a drunk at the town bar. Just thinking about the glory days. Second character is a girl who was the prettiest girl in high school, but now she's a depressed single mother whose husband just left her. Just thinking about the glory days. The third character is a guy who's worked hard all his life, 20 years at the factory just to be fired, and now he's too old for anyone else to give him a job. That's the song. And the beat is happy, and it's upbeat, and it makes you feel sentimental. And then if you stop and you listen to the song, you say, what a, what a great description of these people who lived for themselves. Their focus was them and what they could do and what they could accomplish and how great they could be and how popular they could be and how important they were. And that's where it ends. It's a dead end. It doesn't lead you anywhere. And the great tragedy of church in the United States is that we, that's where a lot of our churches are headed. Like there's this smiling focus on us as so important and so great and everything needs to revolve around us. And it looks great in the moment just like the girl looks great in high school. But fast forward it a few years and you see where it ends. It's a dead end. It ends in tragedy. So two modern challenges that I think you and I need to to be careful of. The first is self-centered writing. Writing. And what I'm talking about here are books, and I'm talking about 98% of the books you'll find on the bestseller shelf at a Christian bookstore. You just don't find many theology books on the bestseller shelf. I don't know that I've ever seen one. What you find are books about us. Well, this is how I feel about something. Well, this is the journey I'm on. Well, this is what my experience has been. 
And you find the same thing not just in books at the, at the bookstore, but on many popular blogs and online forums where people write about things. It's all, not all, but much of it is very self-focused. Yes, they talk about God, but God's almost tangential or an add-on to themselves as the focus of all of it. Tagging God onto your book or your post doesn't make God the center of anything. And many of the the things that are being written are just about us, our journey, our experience, our reflections, our thoughts, our, our, our. It's self-centered writing. So you've got to be careful about that. Secondly, self-centered worship. And under the category of worship, self-centered worship, I'm talking about songs and sermons. Songs and sermons that focus on us. God is not the hero of the song. We're the hero of the song. This is what we're going to do for you, God. Well, that's not putting God at the center. Sermons about this is how great you can be. Well, again, that's not putting God at the center. The focus of preaching and singing ought to be the big pattern predominantly that you just can't miss. The focus has to be on God and who he is and what he's done. And it goes back to this continental divide in theology. Are we going to be the focus of it? Is it going to be about what we can do for God? Or is God going to be the focus of it? It's going to be about what God has done for us. And so I'm going to show you one clip. And I kind of show it to you with fear and trembling because on the one hand it is, um, I don't know, it kind of makes you laugh. It's from a guy named Ed Young Jr., not Ed Young Sr., Ed Young Jr. And he pastors a church called Fellowship Church in uh, Grapevine. And... um, there's some other clips online you can find if you, if you think I'm kind of cherry-picking and not being fair to him. Um, he preached a sermon series back in October called Candyland. And um, they decorated the stage as a giant Candyland game. And they had pieces up on the stage. And uh, they had, you know, given out candy to everybody. And it was kind of the theme of, of what they were building off of. And um, it was... It was supposed to be tied to the book of Exodus. And so I had a hard time when I decided to preach on Exodus, deciding which way to go, Candyland or no. But I went with no. And um, Ed Young Jr. did not. He went with Candyland. And I'm just going to show you the clip. This is the promo clip for the series. And I know it's kind of funny. I don't want you to feel bad if you laugh because it makes me laugh. Not because I think he's funny, but laugh like, oh, that's embarrassing for you that that's happening, that, that kind of funny. And at the same time, just to be honest with you, it makes me sad, really sad, that this is what passes for preaching. And to be totally honest, it makes me really angry. Like it just makes me want to throttle somebody as hard as I can or grab them by the shirt collar. So I'll show you this two and a half minute clip and then uh, we'll talk about it for a minute. Candyland starts with Mr. Mint. God meant Moses for some great stuff. He was born when a bunch of sugar babies were being thrown into the Nile River. They put him in a Cracker Jack craft. Pharaoh's daughter found the prize inside. Moses' payday was coming in the future. He was supposed to be Egypt's next Mr. Goodbar. God's call slipped through his fingers on Butterfinger Boulevard, so Moses skittled out to Dum Dum Desert, met his beautiful wife, Peppermint Patty. God spoke to him in the hot tamale tundra, the burning bush. As God called him for greatness, he picked up a pixie stick, and it became... 
the staff of God. Moses skittled to Pharaoh's office and asked Mr. Goodbar for permission for his people to go to Canandi land. Pharaoh said, no. Well, Moses said, yo, he sent 10 plagues that puts them in a Nestle's crunch. So the people left Egypt. They followed cotton candy by day and an atomic fireball by night. They stood in front of the red hot sea. Moses put the pixie stick over the Red Hot Sea. It was parted and they crossed on dry land. Well, then Pharaoh sent his warheads after the children of Israel. They made it to the other side and they were so happy. They had a Candyland concert with special guest Eminem. Whoop, there goes gravity, not that Eminem, Moses and Miriam. Later on their journey, they went to mounds. I'm talking about a chain of mountains, Mount Sinai in particular. And that's where Moses received the 10 commandments. When he walked down the mountain and saw that God's people were acting like airheads, he busted the commandments and they broke into millions of Reese's Pieces. Right after that, the Israelites turned into Sour Patch Kids. We're thirsty. God gave them water. We're hungry. We're paleo. God gave them quail. Out of anger one time, Moses whacked the pop rock and that really caused him to miss the opportunity to get into Canandi land himself. Get it, Canaan, Canandi land. After the Reese's Pieces, finally, God gave them another set of commandments and they bolted all the way to the edge of Canandi land, the land of milk and honey. They waited there. They were so hopeful. They couldn't wait to claim the promised land. Yet people came back. They said, they're giants in the land. And we're like runts compared to those whoppers. And a Moses mutiny began, and there was all this snickering, snickering behind his back. So Moses didn't have his payday, so he had to relinquish control to junior man Joshua. Joshua led an entire new generation into Canandi land, into Milky Way, and a land flowing with a bit of honey. Our candy land is heaven. Our Egypt is bondage to sin. Our lifesaver is Jesus. We've been enslaved in Egypt, yet Jesus is our lifesaver, our deliverer. It's time for us to walk and to claim our Canandi land, heaven, and staying on the track that God has for us as we live this amazing life. So... That's what I mean when I say the challenge to Soli Deo Gloria is not going to be somebody telling you, you give God too much glory. The challenge is going to be somebody smiling with a large platform and plenty of people who think it's cutesy and playing games with the Bible. Um, I don't see how you can honestly look at that and say the point of this is that we want to be serious about God's glory. That word in the Bible means his heaviness. How serious this is in who God is. The point of that is to be cutesy and attractional and funny and clever and on and on and on. And the irony of it all is that it's sort of a regression all the way back to Rome. Like, if you look at <clears throat> this sermon series, you had to have the whole, the whole sanctuary decorated. You had to have the candy land board, and you had to have the little pieces, and you had to have the big giant cards you flip up, and you had to have, I mean, it's incredible, all the things you had to have. And the irony is that in the Reformation, we talked about Zwingli, Swingley went into the churches and said, we don't need any of this stuff. 
We don't need the paintings. We don't need the pipe organ. We don't need the altars. We don't need the statues. We don't need the stained glass windows. We don't need any of it. And we talked about it. He just gutted these churches. And the, the Catholics were appalled. They said, you're going to church in a barn. And he said, exactly. We don't need any of that stuff to focus on God. In fact, Zwingli would say, all that stuff is a distraction from focusing on God's glory. All of it takes away. And I cannot imagine if you could get Zwingli up out of the grave and bring him back to 2018 and say, let me walk you into a Protestant church. He's expecting a barn and you walk him into Candyland. Um, we do need to always be reforming. Semper reformanda. It never ends. You have to fight these battles for the five solas in every single generation. And our kids, we got a bunch of little kiddos in this church. we got a bunch of them about to be born in the next year. Those kids, when they grow up, they're going to have to fight a completely different battle for these solas. But it's going to essentially be the same fight. Are we going to trust in Scripture alone? Are we going to rely on God's grace alone? Are we going to preach that justification is by faith alone? Are we going to trust in Christ alone? And are we going to focus on God's glory alone? Or are we going to compromise on those things? So I'll put one last picture on the screen. We'll end with this. This is a picture of Eisenach, Germany. And uh, I, got, I spent some time just looking at pictures. This is a beautiful city. And that was kind of the best picture you could see of the whole town. Um, Eisenach was the birthplace of Johann Sebastian Bach. So I bet you've heard of Bach. He was born in this city. And uh, years before he was born, Martin Luther attended school in this town and did some of his writing later in life in a castle in this town. So Luther spent a lot of time in Eisenach, and then he died, and things went on. The Reformation went on, and it took root in Eisenach, and it became a good Lutheran town. And uh, we talked about Luther didn't like that. He didn't like people calling themselves Lutherans. He thought that was taking away from God's glory alone, but that's what happened. They called themselves Lutherans. And Johann Sebastian Bach was a good Lutheran and uh, went, to town, uh, went to school in the same town uh, that Luther went to school. And we remember him as a, a classical composer. In, in history, he wrote music for church. That was his purpose. And uh, there's interesting records from the town where he had applied for the job as essentially the worship leader for the town and didn't get the job uh, at first. They wanted somebody else. And in the notes, like the business meeting notes, you think that, oh, nobody's going to read these. Well, we've read them. And in the business meeting notes, somebody wrote down, we're going to have to settle for a second-rate musician to lead worship in the town. And that second-rate musician was Bach and uh, wrote some amazing music. And uh, what's interesting to me about Bach is that he was a good Lutheran, and in church he wanted the focus to be on God and his glory alone. But he also wanted the focus in all of life to be on God's glory alone. And I think that's a good takeaway for us as we wrap up is to say, 
what we're talking about tonight is not just something that needs to happen in this room. If the only time it happens in our lives is in this room, it's not going to last. It's got to be something that's true of us that takes root in our, in our hearts and that's true of every area of our lives, regardless of what your profesh, uh, profession is or your, your age or your stage of life or your family situation. It's got to be true of everything about who you are. And so on his compositions, it's one of his handwritten compositions on the left and then zoomed in over on the right. You see he always wrote, uh, sometimes he wrote it out like this, Soli Deo Gloria, and sometimes he just wrote SDG. And he would have some, in some of his, uh, his compositions, he would have two sets of initials at the end. JSB, Johann Sebastian Bach, SDG, Soli Deo Gloria. And he understood this is something that shouldn't just be true when we meet in the worship room, but this should be true of everything that we do. Writing music and milking cows and making clothes and doing business and raising kids. This is something that has to permeate every area of who we are as followers of Christ. So that's the, the five solas wrapped up with Soli Deo Gloria. So um, I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, I'm going to give you a couple of prayer requests to pray for, and we'll wrap up.